This is Come and See by Father Ron Baird for April 17th, 2011, Palm Sunday. The Gospel is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. On Palm Sunday, we finally emerge from the desert of our sin. Haven't quite gotten into Jerusalem yet. Coming down from the north, we've reached the sort of outskirts of Jerusalem where the suburbs, if you will, are. Very, very close. You can actually see Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives where Jesus is. We come into a town that's called Bethphage is the name of it. It's very close to Bethany where Mary and Martha live. And it means, its name means uh, house of unripened figs called that because when Jesus, if you remember, had left the temple at one point, he walked out and, and he saw a fig tree planted there, but it wasn't bearing fruit, so he caused it to wither and die. As a result, the town has been named Bethphage ever since. So on the Mount of Olives, you can see, you know, if you're standing there looking out across the Kidron Valley, this sort of sharp slope, and then it slopes back up again. Sounds like a long way, but it's really not that far. I mean, it's easily walked within about 10 minutes. But to your left would be uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and all the things that went on there. And directly in front of you would be the Golden Gate. That's why Jesus had come to this place, because the prophet Zechariah had said that the Messiah, the son of David, would enter triumphantly into Jerusalem through the Golden Gate. You can't get through the Golden Gate now. Um, when the Muslims took it over in the 4th century, they blocked it up to, to keep any Messiah out. Well, it was a little strange because if you were really the Messiah, you probably wouldn't need, probably wouldn't matter if you blocked it up or not, but, but it, it's blocked up. It just looks like part of the wall, although you can still see the arch where the gate was. And as he was standing there, he said, go into town, into Bethphage, and there you will see a donkey and its foal tied up. Get them and bring them to me. And he rides a donkey down a very steep hill. You have to kind of do this all the way down, a car or on a donkey, and all the way back up again. Probably would have been quicker to walk. Um, all the way back up into Jerusalem. Now he did this for two reasons. One was to show who he was. Well, both were to show who he was. One was to show who he was according to the prophet Zechariah. I'm sure you're all familiar with Zechariah. I could give a quiz. You all have it all down there. I suspect most people were like that. Um, somewhat of an obscure prophet, but a pro they knew that Zechariah was a prophet, <laughs> but they did. And, and he had said that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, colt, the foal of a donkey. So he goes riding um, down the hill. And the other thing is because coming riding through the Golden Gate, is a sign that all Israelites would know was a sign of a Messiah who had come to free Israel. Now, I have to tell you, there were a lot of Messiahs. In probably the hundred years spanning, you know, the time when Jesus was crucified, either 50 before and 50 after, there must have been like 20 Messiahs. They all came to the same end. They were all killed. And so people would get excited because they had been living under oppression for so long. You know, first it was Alexander the Great, 
and then it was the Ptolemies who succeeded Alexander, and then after that, it was, you know, the Romans who came in. They had been under occupation for hundreds of years. No one there even knew anyone who had not lived under oppression. So you can imagine that they yearned to have their country back. They yearned for freedom. They wanted a Messiah. And so as Jesus is riding in, they wave palm branches because that's what's readily available for everyone to see, and they're shouting Hosanna in Ohio. It would probably be akin to if you've ever seen the political conventions that are on TV when they're nominating presidential candidates. You know, everybody got their signs going up and down. They got the bells going off and the, the horns and all that sort of stuff. It's kind of like that. Real big party. And as Jesus is riding in, they're making a big ruckus because they're excited, but there's a problem. And the problem is, is what are they looking for? Well, what I would suggest to you is that it's not a lot different from us. They were really Palm Sunday Christians most of the time. Because we like the idea of a Savior. Well, that's a good idea. You know, get me a Savior. When I have a problem, get me somebody to fix it. If we want somebody to come in on their on their white steed and, and save the day. That's why, I don't know if you're all that familiar with Civil War history, but um, Robert E. Lee always rode a horse named Traveler. He was a big horse, and he was white. And he always had his uniform pressed, and, and it was always clean and looked perfect. And it inspired the people, the soldiers, because it was, it was like the white knight coming in to save the day. Now, this was the good guy, and, and he could really rally people. Well, you have to wonder about the crowd. Here they're all excited because they hear the crowd yelling. Everybody's going, what's going on? What's going on? The Messiah's going to enter in through the Golden Gate. And they're all coming, grabbing palms. They're shouting, Hosanna, the highest, and trying to see over everybody's shoulder. And there's this guy sitting on a donkey. There's a noble steed. <laughs> they're probably a donkey. How weird. Maybe that was all he could get at the moment. What they wanted was someone to liberate them, to free them, to solve their problem. Isn't that what we really want from God? Is someone who will solve our problems? Someone who will make the world right, according to me? The way it's supposed to be? The problem is, is it isn't what they got, is it? And when they didn't get it, they turned on it. And the same crowd that's shouting, Hosanna in the high. They're so excited because the, the Savior is coming. We'll be standing there in the crowd shouting, crucify him. There is nothing worse than a Savior who lets you down. Gets to you every time. It's terribly disappointing. You know what that's like if you've ever had an adult or, or a very good friend or somebody who was always there for you, and then they're not. The disappointment is heartbreaking. And that's what they wanted. It's what we want, isn't it? We want somebody, if, if, if we have financial problems, we want somebody to solve our financial problems. If we're having problems in our relationships with our kids or friends or spouses, we want somebody to come in and solve those things. If we have you know, problems with our boss at work, we want somebody to come in and hit him in the head and get him straightened out. You know, if we have 
you know, problems with illness or, you know, a disease or something. We want God to make it better. We pray for it all the time. And isn't one of the biggest questions in the world about, well, why does God heal some people and not others? Now, what's that about? What did I do? Or why do bad things happen to people when they didn't do anything wrong? Because we really want the world to be right, according to us. And yet, it's not the God we've got. And I wonder somewhat if we aren't just as likely to be the ones who turn on them. Perhaps we're not as, um, I mean, it is 2,000 years later. We've had the story read to us over and over again, so we've gotten smart. You know, we probably wouldn't stand up and yell, crucify him quite as loud. But it's just as easy to get back to life as usual and sort of forget about all of it. But if you've been wandering through the wilderness of sin, you know, really examining your life, you know what that's like because your backpack that you've been stuffing all your sins into has gotten rather heavy by now. And if you're like me, it's frustrating because what you find is that, you know, it ought to be one of those things where, okay, once I figure out what the sin is, I ought to be able to do something about it, right? You're all staring at me. Nobody else has that problem? (laughs) Am I the only one? Why do I keep doing it when I already know it? We need somebody else to fix this, don't we? So we want a Savior. And as we come to Jerusalem, okay, I did all this hard work, God. Now, I want you to take away my sin. I'm going to be, I want to be perfect in the world according to Ron Baird. I want the world to be perfect. And when we do that, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, come and go, and there's all this expectation and build up, and it's done. It's over. And it's a letdown. Because you're like, oh, now we get to do it all over again, I guess. Apparently that one didn't take. Well, our problem is, is that we're looking for the wrong kind of Savior. The kind of Savior that we get is a guy on a donkey who has a dirty robe on, who probably hasn't washed his hair in six months, who doesn't take baths all that regularly, who looks a little awkward sitting on the side of a donkey. And, and we're wondering, this guy's going to overthrow the Roman government? This guy's going to solve my problems? And yet he's on the donkey on purpose to show us what salvation really looks like. See, our idea of salvation is that salvation is a place where there's no pain where there aren't problems, where people like each other and are always nice. It's sort of like Lake Wobegon, where the women are beautiful, men are strong, women are beautiful, and children are all above average. Which is always a fascinating thing to me, because if they were all above average, wouldn't that make that average? But that's another. <laughs> we just want the world to be this wonderful, idyllic place as long as it's according to me, not according to someone else. But the Savior we get goes in and gets arrested and tortured and executed and dies. And yeah, he rose again, but okay, now can I have my goodies? (laughs) And now can I get all that stuff? 
And so for 2,000 years, all too often, the church has been doing the same thing over and over again, coming back to being Palm Sunday Christians. We like the idea, and you see it even on TV, the celebration where people get so excited about the Lord, and isn't the Lord wonderful? And He is. But then I also wonder, but do you think He's that wonderful when you are suffering? Do you think He's that wonderful when you're having your problem? Or is that different? And you can see why we get into this dilemma about, well, what did I do to cause this? Because it must be my fault. Well, it's not my fault. Whose fault is it? If God isn't doing it, what good is he anyway? Why doesn't he fix it? If we really want to experience what resurrection is like, we have to totally change our lens. Not on on Easter, that would be easy, but on Palm Sunday. To see that the Savior who rides triumphant comes to be sacrificed, comes to die, comes to be spit upon, comes to suffer. St. Paul told the Philippians about it because they sort of thought it'd be better to have a, a, a little more powerful God than that one. And he said, let the same mind be in you. And I suspect he would say the same thing to us today. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God as a thing to be exploited. But rather, he emptied himself. He took on human form. Being found in human form, he humbled himself even more and became obedient. And even becoming obedient, he went, became obedient even more, became obedient unto death, because that was what his Lord wanted. And it's because of that that his name is exalted high above every name. It's because of that that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Because the same mind was in him that was in God. And if we would have resurrection, we have to let the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus. Now it's interesting that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as the thing to be exploited. Do you remember what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? You know, there was that one tree there tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they said, you can eat of anything you want here, but not that tree. And then that snake comes along and he convinces them to eat of it. You remember how he convinced them what he promised would happen? You will be like God. And everything fell from that. Salvation is not getting to be like God, not having the problem. It's not not suffering. It's not even enjoying the good life all along. It's not um, being happy constantly and having everything great. The good life is obedience even to death. It's about total surrender. It's a life that begins to, to see the world not as a place where it's supposed to be good and why is it that God doesn't fix it and make it right, but rather, man, this world's really messed up. It's a wonder any of us are alive. It's a wonder we made it this far. It's a world that expects that being alive in the world will bring with it pain and suffering. 
question is, does the pain and suffering have any meaning? Or is it just meaningless? Is it just something we have to endure until we get through it to another moment of good so that we can go back into it again? That kind of life is a futile life. What God tells us is, no, pain and suffering does not have to be meaningless. That's why Paul says, rejoice in your sufferings. Because he doesn't believe that they will be meaningless. He believes that if the same mind is in you that was in Christ Jesus, they will be profoundly meaningful and will shape you for eternity. What would you rather have? 80 years on this planet without problems, without pain, and eternal death, or 80 years on this planet as a servant of God with pain and problems and suffering and eternal life that is great forever? You know, very often we're like the two-year-old that I heard in the doctor's office when we took John in for his annual physical this year. You know, we look to God and we say, I trust you, Lord, you know, fix my problems. And then we want to know, well, where were you when all this was happening? Why did you let this happen to me? That's like the two-year-old. You think about the two-year-old had come into the doctor for for her physical, I think it was her. And, um, you know, she trusts her mom. Mom always takes care of her. You know, mom is there for her. And then this evil nurse being comes in with this thing in her hand that she doesn't quite know yet what it is until her mom allows her to stick a metal object into her muscle. She didn't like it. And she screamed. Now you'd think, well, once it was over, it was fine, right? No. Because the betrayal was already there. If it happened once, how do I know it won't happen again? Well, it will. But, um, and you can almost hear her thoughts echoing out. Why did you let them do that to me? What is the matter with you? Isn't that what we do with God? Now, does the mother have the child's best interest at heart? Does the mother want life or death for the child? Does a mother love the child? Well, yeah. Well, why in the world would you let them suffer? Why would you let somebody cause the suffering? Just sit there and watch it. And even worse, we all do this. If you didn't do it, congratulations, you're better than I. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. No, it won't. They stuck something into my body. It hurt. Here, let them stick it in you. And it'll be okay. Right? Why do we say it'll be okay? No, they're going to come back and do it again. We say it'll be okay because we see the bigger okay, don't we? We don't want them to get smallpox or diphtheria or pertussis or German measles or any of these horrible diseases. We want them to, to be healthy. Because we know that sometimes in life, to have life, to have health, you have to suffer first. Why is it we haven't figured out that if it's like that for a short period of time, it's going to be a whole lot more for eternity if we want eternal life? What we have to do is begin to see that entrance into Jerusalem in a very different way. 
Instead of seeing it as the Savior triumphant who's coming in to take care of me and my problems, we have to see it as the Savior triumphant who's coming in to die for the sins of the world so that I can have the same mind as he does and become uh, um, empty myself, not counting equality with God as anything to be exploited, but rather becoming a servant, a slave, and being obedient. Because when I'm obedient, even if suffering comes, it leads me to eternal life. And I know that it won't last forever, just like the parent knows that the shot will wear off, and the adult who still has to get the shot. Anybody here like getting shots? I don't want to talk to you if you do. I mean, it's never, I mean, anytime the doctor goes, especially it gets bad if you're a guy, because then they say, we'll have the nurse come in and give you a shot. I was what, where? You know, so, <laughs> I was like, too, the nurses are so compassionate. Drop them. Do I know you? I mean, <laughs> let me call my wife. You know, none of us look forward to it, do we? Yeah. <laughs> and she'll say it'll be okay. That's right. I always say, is this going to hurt? No, they lie. <laughs> Sometimes you get one that says, what's going to sting? Sometimes you go, oh, no, it never hurts. And it's usually the worst ones. But... And so here we are in the same situation, aren't we? People who want to avoid pain at all costs and people who want real life and meaning in their lives want this time that we spend here to have made a difference. We even do it with our kids. How many of you work hard to keep your kids from suffering? especially teenagers, or did work on them. We don't want them to have problems, do we? Have you seen that commercial where that guy's talking to this, you know, like, five-year-old sitting in a car? <laughs> now, I don't want you to do that. Tell him, it's all right, Dad. You know, and then finally he shows this girl, and then he says, call me, but not while you're driving. Yeah. Boy, she was probably glad to get away from him because we don't want our kids to fail, do we? And yet, the harder we work to keep them from failing, the more we cause them to fail. The more we try to keep them from hurting, the more they hurt. Because they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. You see, you can be obedient to a lot of people. You can be obedient to your parents. There's only one problem. Your parents are human. They're not perfect either. The obedience that is called for is not an obedience to an institution or to a person. It's an obedience to Jesus Christ himself who knows what it is like to be obedient. And if we truly want to raise our children to have life and meaningful life and abundant life that Jesus calls us to, then what we should really teach them to do is to know and serve the Lord because he's the one who's going to bring him to it. We're not. You know, we're just muddling around in the dark. Most of us really haven't figured out what we want to be when we grow up. My father-in-law is 87, he's 88 in next month. And he, um, he's been retired now longer than he ever worked. And so I, I frequently, I said, have you ever decided what you're going to do when you grow up? He says, no, not yet. Well, we really can't unless it's what the Lord wants us to do. Because the truth is that he made us for a reason. You didn't just sort of appear in a primordial soup one day. 
God created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He made you for a reason. And it is by living out that purpose that joy and life and meaning come into fruition so that it even overcomes the suffering of the world. You see, real strength is not to somehow or other avoid the suffering. Real strength is to be able to go through it and not let it touch who you really are at the core of your being. To truly know that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the life that God has given us in Christ. And to have complete confidence that that life will be. And what happens in the world is that we tend to become so enslaved to the things of this world, I kind of wonder why any of us would ever leave. You know, what would be the point? Sometimes I think that's the reason for getting old and your body doesn't work anymore is because the longer you live and the less your body works, the more you start thinking it's not as bad an idea as it seemed when I was 20. You know, because it gets harder as you go along. And I end with a story um, that some of you may know, but Archbishop Benjamin Kwashi is the Archbishop of Jos in northern Nigeria. Jos is the area that you've been reading about in the paper, hearing on the news, where Christians are being persecuted. They've been, they're being killed. Um, they're coming in and burning their churches. And uh, Archbishop Benjamin knows what this is like firsthand because his wife has been beaten almost to death. He's had um, a time where the gunman came and pulled him out of his house and were holding an AK-47 to the back of his head. And he said, I just knelt and prayed the Lord's Prayer and kept praying and praying and praying. And then I heard my son say, Poppy? I told him, run. And he said, they're gone. But he didn't know really why they were gone. They were just gone. And you would think, oh, good, you know, he suffered, but now it's better. No, they came back. Nine months later, a friend of his comes and, and tells him, you have to leave now. And he says, well, let us get some stuff together. And he says, no, you leave now. Come on, I've got the Jeep. We're going now. They have to grab the kids, just whatever they're wearing, get into the Jeep and go and hide. And they destroyed their entire house and everything that was in it. He had nothing. Nothing whatsoever. And yet it's the same man who came to the United States to talk to us about our suffering as we were going through lawsuits and all sorts of things. He says, I know it's really hard, you know, in America you have so many things. And, you know, even the churches are wealthy, you know, beautiful buildings and nice organs and all the great stuff. And, and he said, and it's hard to let go of it. He said, I am a lucky man. Well, immediately we go, huh? <laughs> yeah, we, we thought he was empathizing with us, right? And he said, I don't have anything. Everything I have has already been taken away from me except for Jesus Christ. And now there's nothing that anyone can take from me. Nothing that matters anymore. Now, that's really admirable, but he also puts it into practice. He told us about the time before when he'd been there. He had been going through the airport at Dulles. And there was a young man there. This was after uh, 2001. A young man there who started screaming at him because he was an African Anglican bishop. And he, he said, you hate gay people. You're a bigot. You know, in the middle of the airport, if you can get now. What would you all do if somebody was screaming at you in the middle of an airport? Walk faster, right? <laughs> you go, he didn't. He stopped. And he went over to the young man. And he said, who told you I hate people? So everybody knows you hate people. He says, who's everybody? And he says, it's common knowledge. He said, well, it's common wrong knowledge. He said, I don't hate anyone. I'm not even allowed to hate anyone. 
My Lord tells me I must love everyone, even my enemies. Well, yeah, but you do this, this, and this, and this. And he says, he says, I only profess what the Lord tells me. And he says, you never understood what it's like to be oppressed. Well, talk about stepping into that one. So he told him his story and told him about how Jesus Christ had changed his life and about how happy and joyous he was, in spite of the fact that he had nothing and his wife was almost beaten to death and he himself was almost killed. And do you know that before he went and got on the plane, that man said, can you help me to have Jesus in my life? And he said, kneel down. And the man knelt down and they prayed together. And he prayed that Jesus would come into this man's life. He left that, that airport with a man who hated him. He now was a believer. Now, what enabled him to do that? Yeah, but why? Because he had nothing to fear. What was a guy going to do to him? Not like him? Disapprove of him? Embarrass him? Kill him? What would he do? He had nothing to lose. He was obedient even unto death. The question for us as we enter those gates, what kind of Savior do you want? You want a Savior who runs in on a white steed and points his lance at you and makes your world sparkly clean? Because they don't exist. Or do you want a real Savior who says, if you will come and die with me, I will give you life that will last forever. Life that will start now will be abundant and so that you have the strength and the endurance and the ability to overcome anything that the world may throw at you kind of life that you will be able to say, it was important that I was here. That's what Jesus offers. But you can't get there from going from Palm Sunday to Easter and skipping the cross. And it's not just not watching the cross. It's living through the cross and dying through the cross of Christ. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. But though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but rather he emptied himself, taking on human form. And being in human form, he became obedient. He became a slave. He became obedient. And his obedience had no limits, even to death. Are you willing to let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus? Because that's the difference between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That's the difference between a tomb with a rock in front of it and one where the tomb is rolled away and he is risen. The choice, as God always allows it, is up to each one of us. Amen. You have been listening to Come and See by Father Ron Baird. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrews is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to come and see.